Okay, well, here's a question for you. Uh, what do the following people have in common? Biff Tannen, Regina George, Johnny Lawrence, and Draco Malfoy. Anybody? 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 They're all bullies. That's right, they're all bullies. Movie characters who famously like to intimidate and threaten and domineer the people around them. And I think we've all encountered real-life bullies at one stage or another, haven't we? And it's never very pleasant. But it's one thing to experience bullies in the playground or in the office. Quite another to experience them in church. Especially when the bully is someone in a position of spiritual authority. Yet sadly, over the last few years, there has been an increasing trend of disturbing stories about bullying pastors, and the devastating impact they've had on individuals and even whole churches. So why do some churches and Christian ministries tolerate this spiritually abusive behaviour? And how can we avoid it here in our own church? Well, I think today's passage from 2 Corinthians will be very helpful for us as we think about these questions if you don't already have a Bible open in front of you at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me encourage you to turn with me there now. It's page 1803 of the Church Bibles. Uh, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you're looking that up, uh, let me give you a bit of background. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which he helped establish. But after he left the city, uh, some flashy false teachers have come in who are teaching salvation by works. And it seems that they've won over the Corinthian Christians through their arrogant boasts. We've trained at the best schools, they say, have letters of recommendation from the most important people. We've spoken to the largest audiences, held them in the palm of our hand. And yes, we charge top dollar for our services, but that's only because, let's be honest, we're worth it. Unlike that try-hard Paul, who, let's face it, is just a weak and unimpressive wannabe. And the thing, in, the thing is, the Corinthians have been taken in by these false teachers' boasts. Wow, they're so impressive, aren't they? Well, what, what a privilege to have people of such high calibre leading us. But the thing is, these false teachers aren't just boasters, they're bullies too. It seems uh, the phenomenon of bullying pastors isn't just a modern one. And not only are these false teachers demanding money from the Corinthians, they're demanding unquestioning obedience too. In fact, these false teachers are even prepared to slap the Corinthians around a bit you know, in order to keep them in line. Well, it's this awful situation in Corinth that now forces Paul to do something that he really does not want to do. That is to make some boasts of his own. Even though he knows boasting is nothing more than arrogant foolishness, he decides that in this case, he's going to have to fight fire with fire, or the Corinthians are going to be lost to the gospel forever. 
Here, read with me from chapter 11, verse 16. Chapter 11, verse 16. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you, puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit we were too weak for that. Shocking, isn't it? Shocking. These false teachers aren't just boastful, they're bullies. Though I guess that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, when you have an overinflated opinion of yourself, when you're convinced of your own superiority, that's no doubt going to come out, not just in your words, but in the contemptuous way you treat others too. Uh, Seeing them as pawns to serve you and advance your own agenda. And to Paul's dismay, the Corinthians are putting up with this treatment. It seems that they actually believe that this is what good Christian leadership is like. You know, self-assured, demanding, forceful. Hence Paul's little dig at the end there, did you notice? Where he's like, yeah, sorry guys, sorry I wasn't strong enough leader to mistreat you too. Do forgive me. But Paul speaks ironically here only because he knows that this understanding of Christian leadership couldn't be further from the truth. And so to correct the Corinthians, Paul reluctantly begins his own foolish boast, starting with the issue of Jewishness. Seems the false teachers boast of having impeccable Jewish ancestry. And so Paul's response here is, well, so do I. But the false teachers have also been boasting about what valuable servants of Christ they are. But this time, Paul doesn't just respond with a me too, but rather takes his boast in a rather unexpected direction. Where where the false teachers say, we're clearly servants of Christ, just look uh, look at all of our achievements. Paul says, so am I, just look at all my troubles and struggles. And it's quite a list. Imprisonment, beatings, stonings, floggings, shipwrecks, bandits, opposition, rejection, persecution, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, exposure to the elements. And then on top of that, there's also his constant concern for all the churches he's planted. Uh, Their weakness and sin weighing heavily on his heart. Not exactly your typical boast, I'm sure you'd agree. In fact, it's almost a a parody of boasting. It's a boast about weakness. And to drive the point home, Paul recounts a defining moment in his ministry. The night he had to be lowered in a basket down a city wall in order to escape those seeking his life. 
Here, read with me uh, from the second half of verse 21. 21. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and, and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. You might uh, recall how proud, self-righteous Paul uh, had headed to the city of Damascus in order to kill Christians. Do you remember? You remember how he was then miraculously, spectacularly converted after meeting the risen Jesus on the way? His conversion and preaching in the city caused quite a, a stir and he was forced to leave Damascus in this rather humbling way. And that, that, that incident must have been a real aha moment for Paul as he realised that his life work would be marked by triumph, would not be marked by triumph and honour in this world, but rather weakness and dishonour. Then next, Paul goes on to counter another of the false teacher's boasts. It seems they've been bragging about their ecstatic spiritual experiences. And the Corinthians have taken that as proof of their superior leadership qualities. So now Paul, reluctantly, shares about an ecstatic experience of his own. But he is so uncomfortable or almost embarrassed about sharing it, he tells it in the third person, you know, as though he's speaking about someone else. Apparently, 14 years earlier, Paul had an experience where he was taken up to what he calls the third heaven, paradise, where, where he saw Jesus. Though whether he was raptured, that is, taken up uh, to the third heaven bodily or in a vision... Uh, Paul's not quite sure. But either way, it, it was an extraordinary experience. 
What is this third heaven Paul refers to? Well, apparently there are three heavens. Um, Obviously, uh, the first for Anglicans. um, (laughs) Second for Baptists. And the third for Presbyterians. Paradise. No, just kidding. It's, it's probably a reference to the Jewish way of viewing the universe. Uh, there's the sky and clouds, then there's the stars, and uh, then the invisible realm where God's throne is. And apart from the book of Revelation, there is nothing in the New Testament to compare with the amazing experience that Paul encounters here. Uh, the false teachers have nothing on this. But what's really interesting is that this seems to be the first time in 14 years that Paul has told anyone about it. And and only because he's been left with little choice. I really like what commentator Kent Hughes says on this. Most people, had they been granted an ecstasy like Paul's, wherein they actually had been raptured to paradise, would scarcely be able to contain themselves. Today, they would write a bestseller, My Rapture. A personal account of my trip to heaven and back. (laughs) Seminars on five steps to your own rapture would be sold out. Paul, however, from the evidence of the text, would certainly have taken the story of rapture to the grave were it not for the compelling necessity to boast in it for the sake of the Corinthian church. And yet it seems to me that Paul's point in telling this story is not simply to get one up on the false teachers. It seems he's primarily sharing it so he can speak of yet another weakness, a humbling thorn in the flesh given to him by God as a way of keeping Paul grounded after such a lofty experience. In terms of what Paul's thorn actually was, uh, we don't know, but it must have been something quite irritating, uh, annoying, debilitating even, just as a literal thought in the flesh would be. And uh, over the centuries, uh, people have speculated everything from headaches to uh, gallstones to uh, a speech impediment uh, to poor eyesight. Uh, I can't help but wonder if he was a Parramatta Reels supporter, perhaps. (laughs) um... At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we just don't know. We don't know. Uh, But we do know that like with Job in the Old Testament, remember Job, uh, Paul's affliction was the work of Satan, but permitted by God. Because God determined that without this thorn, Paul would become conceited like the false teachers. And that would be unacceptable. And, And I suspect these false teachers are actually pointing to Paul's thorn as evidence that God's not really with him. But Paul turns that upside down here, doesn't he? Revealing that his thorn is actually a gift from God. Not that Paul loves his thorn, like some kind of sick masochist. No, he prayed three times for it to be taken away. But Jesus lovingly answered him, No, Paul, I won't take it away. But I promise that my grace will enable you to cope. And as your thorn causes you to rely on me more and more, you'll see my power at work through your weakness. 
You read with me from chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself here, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I'll boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should boast, choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And so Paul turns the boastfulness of the false teachers on its head. Their prideful self-sufficiency is not what God wants from the leaders in his church. Which is why Paul delights in his weaknesses, knowing that it's when he's weak, God gets all the glory for whatever he achieves through him. And then Paul concludes this part of the letter with a passionate call for the Corinthians to step up and deal with the false apostles. To, to do what they should have done a long time ago. To stop listening to them and start defending Paul as a genuine, and his genuine apostleship. Here, read with me the final verses for today from chapter 12, verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 11. I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. For I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders and miracles. How are you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. It's funny, isn't it? Uh, Paul can't help one last dig. Yeah, really, really sorry, guys, for not exploiting you more than I did. Don't worry, next time I'll, I'll, rob you, I'll rob you blind. Then perhaps you'll accept me as a true apostle. But it's sarcasm with a purpose. To get the Corinthians' attention, to, to wake them up to reality. To get them to stand up and stick up for Paul. And silence the false teachers once and for all. And with that, we re reached the end of today's passage. Now, what have we seen? Well, the Corinthian Christians 
have a wrong view of what authentic Christian leadership is. They've been wowed by the self-assured, domineering, flashy false teachers who are really just boastful bullies, using their ministry for their own gain and glory. Paul shows what true Christian leadership is like. God-dependent, self-sacrificing, humble and loving for the good of the flock and to the glory of God. And so what do you think this passage has to say to us here today? Because as I said at the start, over the last few years, there has been a, a number of disturbing stories that have come out about bullying church leaders. So why do you think that is? Why do you think it is? Well, commentator Sam Albury reckons that, just like the Corinthian Christians, we have become a bit confused about what good Christian leadership is. He reckons that many churches today have come to borrow leadership wisdom from the world, thinking in terms of business and, and military models. He writes, this is there is obviously much to be learned from both successful CEOs and also great generals. But both models can quickly become toxic. When either becomes the primary model for Christian leadership, is it any wonder that domineering pastors result? In each case, we either tolerate or fail to see traits of bullying because ministry ends justify ministry means. And he's right, isn't he? It can be easy for us to be wowed by a pastor's charisma or his ability to get things done or his giftedness as a speaker or his go-getter attitude or his history of results. Not that there's a problem with any of these things, but when they are prioritised over and above biblical character traits... They become toxic and have a devastating impact on individuals and even whole churches. I think the most notable case in recent years would have to be that of Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill Church in the US. Uh, Mark was renowned as an evangelical preacher, unapologetic adherence to the truth of Scripture. He was young and gutsy and very successful. He built a church of more than 15,000 people, became one of the first Christian internet celebrities. But inside the church, Driscoll was abusive and controlling. As many Mars Hill survivors now testify, he was a bully. The fact that he wasn't accountable to any denominational hierarchy meant that he could fire people at will. So when anyone on the staff team happened to think differently to Driscoll, well, they were often humiliated, fired, publicly discredited, and then ostracised. As you can imagine, the experience left many people shattered and tragically some even abandoned their faith altogether. 
when widely respected counsellor and author Paul Tripp was asked to investigate what was going on in the church, he concluded, this is without a doubt the most abusive, coercive ministry culture I've ever been involved with. In the end, uh, Tripp and the Marcial elders called on Driscoll to step down from leadership, to receive counselling with a view to restoration. But Driscoll's response, sadly, was to resign and then start up a new church in another state. It's very easy for us to be wowed by gifted, successful people, isn't it? But desirable ends in ministry, like growing numbers and notoriety, can never justify ungodly means. And that's why when it comes to Christian leadership, we need to remember that character is king. Character is king. So what kind of character qualities should we expect in our leaders here at church? And by that, I'm not just referring to pastors, but uh, to elders, Bible study leaders, youth and kids leaders, and all who lead and sing and play from the front here. Well, that's a, a topic that's directly addressed in numerous places in the New Testament, places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and, and 1 Peter 5, and I strongly encourage you, look them up, look them up, look at what those qualities are, know what they are. But for the sake of time, let's just think briefly now about three character traits that come out of today's passage. Firstly, we see that Christian leaders ought to be humble, not arrogant. Humble, not arrogant. After all, Paul was pretty clear with what he thought about the arrogant boasts of the super apostles. What did he call them? Do you remember? Foolishness. Foolishness. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because, friends, the fact is, everything we have and everything we are ultimately comes to us from God. And that leaves no room for boasting. If you are a good speaker, that's God's doing. If you've got lots of letters after your name, that's because God helped you get them. If, if you've got a big church or, or a thriving ministry, it's God's work. And that means to arrogantly take credit for any of it is absolutely ludicrous. A Christian leader boasting about his or her achievements is as foolish as Shakespeare's pen taking credit for Romeo and Juliet. Now, like his pen, we too are just tools in the hand of the master. Helpless and ineffective without him. Nothing. And we need to feel that. Last week, I met up with a guy from, uh, to, to do some training for leading prayers here in church. And at one point, he said to me, Warren... You know, I don't feel particularly comfortable about being up front. It's, it's really not my thing. But I am willing to do it to serve. 
And I think to myself, hallelujah. You're exactly the person that that we want. Because when we feel our own inadequacy, it makes us rely on God and gives him a chance to shine. Not that we shouldn't serve where we're gifted. Of course we should. The important thing, however, is that whatever we do, whatever we do, we depend on God and give him the credit. We're to be humble, not arrogant. Secondly, in today's passage, we see that true Christian leadership is sacrificial, not self-serving. It's self-sacrificial, not self-serving. I mean, obviously, the false teachers were all about themselves, weren't they? For them, ministry was all about greed and glory, their own glory. They were self-serving. But that definitely was not the case for Paul, was it? No, he was clearly in it for the sake of others and for the glory of God. his, His heart, his heart was so tied up with his people in the churches He was constantly concerned for their well-being, not his own. And that long list of sufferings proves that he was a true servant. That like Christ, he was there not to be served, but to serve. And that's what we should be looking for in our church leaders too. People who are prepared to put in the hard yards in the service of others and to the glory of God. Not self-serving, but self-sacrificial. Like the senior pastor I know, who for the last 25 years has taken it upon himself to put out the garbage bins each week. Cleaning up the disgusting mess that is often left around them. No, I'm not speaking in the third person. (laughs) I know it's not quite 40 lashes minus one, but you get the point, don't you? We can't afford to have self-serving church leaders. It's ruinous, and it brings shame to the name of Christ. And I can tell you that's why when we have, a new, we have new student ministers arrive here at CP, CPC, the first place we have them serve is, can you guess where? Connect Kids. The kids' ministry. Why? Why? Because it's not glamorous. It's hard work. There's no acclaim. Just embarrassing costumes. snotty noses to clean and and glitter that you can't get out of your hair for a week. Because we want spiritual leaders who are self-sacrificial, not self-serving. And third and finally, we learn here that true Christian leadership is about exhorting people, not coercing them, like the false teachers did. It's about exhorting, not coercing, number three, isn't it? You know, it wasn't that long ago that a pastor and two other leaders from another church here in Chatswood were found guilty of bashing a woman, 
because she stopped coming to church. No wonder she stayed away. That, friends, is not true Christian leadership. Now, don't get me wrong. There'll be times when leaders will will rebuke us and, and even speak to us firmly. But the Bible's clear. There is no place for coercion, either through intimidation, physical abuse, or anything else. And that's why in our denomination we have a code of conduct that that clearly forbids any sort of bullying. You'll find it out in the foyer. You want to take a look. And all our leaders ought to be held accountable to it. Yes, the Bible does call us to obey our leaders. But not because we're terrified of them. But rather because we're inspired by them and encouraged by their example. We we want to be people who obey, not because of a leader's forcefulness, but because God's spirit is changing our hearts. Which is why I've resolved, you want to know what I've resolved? That's why I've resolved that I'm just going to keep on encouraging you to keep, arrive here at church before it starts. Okay, I'm just going to keep, I've resolved, I'm going to keep encouraging you over and over again to get here before the service starts. And I've resolved that I'm not going to stand up the back with a big stick. <laughs> Bonking people over the head when they come in like, I'm not going to do it. You know why? Because I want to exhibit the kind of leadership the Bible calls for, which means no stick. That is right, isn't it? Let me just check here for a second. <laughs> Double check. No stick. Okay, no stick. Well, friends, let's pray. Let's pray that this is the kind of leadership culture we'll always have here at church. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that he is the ultimate example of Christian leadership. Thank you for his humble, sacrificial and encouraging manner. Thank you that he came not to be served, but to serve. Help us to be like him, to whomever you've placed under us in authority. Please forgive us when we get it wrong. Please protect our church from spiritual bullies. And may all the glory of our service go to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.